Well, thank you, Steve. Um, he deserves extra credit this morning. Um, that was not a short passage. And uh, our sound guy, Lawrence, told me that because it's so long, we should just read it, pray, and get out of here and go get breakfast. And so uh, we're not going to do that. Uh, but we're also not going to pick it apart verse by verse um, as we typically do. Um, there's so much in here, but what we want to do is make some contextual notes, uh, get an overview um, of some things that are going on here. And uh, uh, there, there's so much um, just, just in these uh, verses. And so hopefully uh, you can follow the flow of where we're going this morning. But uh, let's just ask for the Lord's provision as we go into this time. God, thank you so much again for this morning. God, we ask, um, God, once again that you would be present here. We ask that you would be um, uh, forceful uh, in your word, God, that your word would be strong to us this morning. Um, that we would uh, um, just find ourselves humbly at your feet, um, that we would see uh, just the, uh, the anchor of Jesus, his grace and his love uh, through all sorts of division and conflict and things that arise that we don't expect. God, we're grateful um, for the source of Jesus as our uh, anchor of hope, God. Um, by the end of the day, we pray that this is only more firmly established in our hearts uh, through the power of your word. And it's in uh, your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to jump right into it. We're going to pick up uh, pretty much where Brett left off last week. Pastor Brett is out of town. I don't know if he was trying to avoid the monsoon or what, but uh, um, I think it covered the whole country almost, so he probably still got wet. Uh, either way, we're going to be in John chapter 7. If you recall, at the start of this chapter, um, Jesus and his brothers are talking. Okay, this is just a little bit of... Uh, uh, groundwork before we get into our passage this morning. And uh, uh, there's a thing going on called the Festival of Tabernacles. Okay, it was this week-long festival. It was this huge festival. We'll talk about it. Um, also, what was going on is there was a death threat on Jesus. Uh, he had this standing threat uh, that the religious leaders um, wanted to kill him. This goes all the way back to uh, John chapter 5 and probably even before that when Jesus healed the paralyzed, lame, blind man at the pool of Bethesda. You recall that? And the Jewish leaders, instead of celebrating with the man that he had been he healed, instead they tried to kill his healer. They, say they, they, they have murderous threats upon him. And so uh, the Festival of Tabernacles is going on in Judea. Uh, Jesus' brothers say, hey, Jesus, go to, to Judea, do some of these works. Do some of these miracles. Nobody who wants to be a public um, um, person uh, does this by secret, Right? Um, and, and we see in uh, early parts of chapter 7 that his brothers did not believe in him. So really what they're doing is they're kind of taunting him. Jesus, go. If you want to be a public figure, um, go to the festival where all these people are and do some works. You'll get a following. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to go. My time has not yet come. Right? And so his brothers go to the festival in Judea, but... Uh, Jesus um, does not go publicly, but he does go in secret, right? He sends them on their way, gets them off their back, and then he decides to still go. I love Jesus does these things all the time. He says one thing, and it sounds like he's kind of doing another, right? They wanted him to go publicly, but he goes secretly, okay? And, and so this Festival of Tabernacles, here's what it is. People would gather in Judea, and, and it was a commemoration of the Lord's provision, for his people, right? You think uh, Exodus, you think God delivered his people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. 
right? And so they, they celebrate this. And not only that, uh, there were 40 more years. Uh, the Israelites had, a, had some unfaithfulness, and so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But even during that time, God sustained them. He provided for them their essential needs, and then he delivered them once again from the wilderness. You recall that? Uh, in fact, this festival of uh, tabernacles was also called Festival of Booths. Because oftentimes the Jewish people, uh, and they still do this even today, uh, they would build temporary um, tabernacles, temporary booths, right? To remember uh, how the Israelites lived in the wilderness. They built these tents, these temporary dwellings, and they moved. And so uh, the Jews would build these things, and they would live in them for the week during the festival, Right? It was a festival of celebration, and even today I've heard stories of Jewish families who uh, they'll take the opportunity to just build a little tent with the kids you know, in their homes, and they celebrate it in this way, um, but that's what it's commemorating. And then it, it doesn't just look back at the deliverance of what God did for his people then, but it also looks forward to the Messiah, because they were still expecting uh, a, a deliverance. Right, Not um, so much as, as we have come to understand it through Jesus. He came to deliver them from so much more than this. But they were expecting some deliverance from just the religious and social, political oppression from the Roman Empire. And they were waiting on this. And they were look for, looking forward to the Messiah. And we know now that the Messiah was Jesus Christ. Uh, and that he came to deliver from so much more than just strife and oppression in this world. Amen. So... Jesus makes his way to the festival. And by the way, why wouldn't he? It was about him, right? Would you, would you avoid your own party? Of course not. He didn't necessarily go to celebrate, but he was the Messiah. He made his way there, and he didn't go to make some big public, public spectacle of some sort of miracle or anything like that. He did, it, it did get public pretty quick, but he went to teach, right? He went to teach. Uh, we find him teaching in the temple courts, Okay, and so he's teaching in the temple courts, and, and this is how the people respond in verse 15, right? A verse uh, right before where we're at. It says, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? This was the crowd's response. Who is this guy? How, how did he have so much ability to teach when he has not been taught himself? Right, so they're murmuring among each other, asking about this. And Jesus, as he often did, knowing the hearts and thoughts and murmurings of all men, speaks into it as he's teaching. And he says this in verse 16. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Now I want you to know where we're going this morning. We're going to make our way through a large portion of Scripture, as you have already uh, heard, and hopefully you listen to that, because we're going to, we're going to hit it from different points, right? Um, but I want you to know where we're going, because towards the end of our passage today is verse 43. And verse 43 says this, the people were divided because of Jesus, okay? And we need to know that verse 16 is why. Verse 16 is why he claimed to be sent by God, one with God, doing the works with God, uh, doing the Lord's works. Uh, In fact, the Pharisees understood his claim to be one with God. In chapter 5, that's part of the reason they wanted to kill him is because they understood that whenever he said, I'm doing the Lord's works, that he was claiming unity with God. This is the reason for the division. He claimed authority from God. 
Now, there's other factors we're going to acknowledge uh, in regards to why people had such a divided response to Jesus. And by the way, this is still very uh, active today, a divided response towards this claim of Jesus' unity with the Father, oneness with God. But it all revolves around this idea that God is, or that Jesus has been sent from God. It's essentially um, what we covered in our Easter series. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're, we're covering essentially the same claim of Jesus. By the way, almost ten times, eight or nine times, just in chapter 7 and 8, Jesus says specifically and overtly, I have been sent from God. So you think he's trying to make a point, right? That doesn't even count all of the other times that he says it uh, implicitly, that he says it um, um, strongly implying the same thing, just using different language. He's obviously trying to make this point to the Jewish leaders. I'm from God, right? And so as we read along, we're going to find just just tension and awkwardness arise because of his claim to be sent from God. So we're going to read this passage. Uh, It's a long one, but we're going to make our way through it. We'll make some contextual notes. But then we're going to acknowledge some of the key factors that play into the divided response that people have towards Jesus. And lastly, and most importantly, we're going to see that, that regardless of the awkwardness and the tension and the hatred and the doubt and the confusion and the murderous threats, Jesus remains an anchor of grace amidst the division to all who believe in him. Jesus remains an anchor of grace amidst the division to all who believe in him. Look with me at verse 17, picking up from where we left off. A little overlap here from last week. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Now you see some disconnect. The crowd doesn't isn't real sure what he's talking about here because he's referring to something that happened just a little while ago. Uh, For us, it was about um, a few months ago because that's when we actually preached on John chapter 5. It was quite a while ago. Uh, But for them, it was just a matter of a short time. And it was the time when he healed this man at the pool of Bethesda and they tried to kill him. And so he's, he's invoking that. You're trying to kill me. And the crowd's like, what are you talking about? Right, So he, he's speaking to the religious leaders, but there's obviously a crowd uh, around that is kind of uh, from the outskirts looking in. And then he goes on to, said this, to say this, verse 21. I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Now he could be speaking of the, the feeding of the 5,000 at that point or the miracle uh, at the pool. But then he gets more specific. He says, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, it came from the patriarchs, You circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Right, that's John chapter 5. Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. Okay? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They're not vocal yet, but they'll get there. The crowd was confused at what was going on. Because Jesus, um, Jesus is taking on the Pharisees once again because he healed a lame man after 38 years of just misery and begging at the pool. 
right? We could read about that back in uh, chapter 5. In fact, let's read a few verses from John chapter 5. You can see the response of the religious leaders. If you want to just flip back two pages, looking at verse 16 of chapter 5. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling, uh, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, Jesus says to these people, he says, you have judged by mere appearances. I love that line. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So, for example, the Pharisees thinking about the incident at the pool. There's this paralyzed man, um, and, and they judge the whole situation based on the physical appearance of it as it compared to kind of their religious ways. Okay? And by doing so, what happened is they missed the heart of the Sabbath. They missed the nature of the Sabbath because they were too constrained by the appearances of their, of their own made-up laws. See, people were not to work on the Sabbath, but the word work wasn't specific enough for them. And so what the religious leaders did is they created 39 additional rules, thing, forms of work that you could not do on the Sabbath. And so even though the man took up his mat and walked after Jesus healed him because uh, he, he did break a man-made tradition that said that you're not allowed to change your domain on the Sabbath. But he broke no law of the Sabbath, right? He did not break the law of the Sabbath. And so you see uh, their confusion. They were so constrained on just what they added to it, the appearance of what they added to it, that they judged it completely wrong. If they understood the Sabbath at all, they would have celebrated with the man who was healed rather than trying to kill the healer if they understood. Right? To judge by appearance happens when we take true words out of biblical context, when we miss God's heart for what he established, when we focus on the appearance of something rather than the nature of it. Right? We do this when we judge people as we see them and not as God sees them. When we notice them by the label society has given them instead of um, noticing them as image bearers of God himself. So Jesus calls them out. He invokes Moses. He says, you guys circumcise your baby boys on Sabbath as an act of cleanliness. But I can't cleanse a man on the Sabbath. You, understand, you see the conflict there? You circumcise on the Sabbath and cause severe pain that takes a long time to heal. But you're going to get mad at me when I actually heal a man fully on the Sabbath? You circumcise because it's a sign of purity before God. And yet you get mad at me because I made a man pure? They were too focused on the appearance. They did not see it how God saw it. And so it gradually escalates from there. The crowd certainly has grown at this point. The religious leaders um, get more involved. And so we see in verse 25, um, we see uh, them get more involved. It says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? He, here he is publicly uh, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Jesus responds to this, and guess how he responds? I am sent. I am sent. He says it twice. Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, 
but I was sent. He who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Notice again how Jesus spoke into the murmuring. Knowing the hearts and thoughts of people as he's teaching, he speaks into the questions of the murmurs. Right? And then it says this, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. What a weird statement. Right? Certainly there's got to be something miraculous going on because the people wanted to seize him. I can only imagine that the religious leaders were, were, were lunging, but something just stopped them. They were frozen in their hatred. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? That was verse 31. Many in the crowd believed in him. Okay, this is a beautiful verse amidst it all. People were murmuring, wondering if there was going to be some conflict. Okay, that's a portion of people. They're just there for the excitement of it. There's other people who are wondering if the reason that there was no conflict is because the Pharisees had actually agreed with Jesus. They've come to understand that he is the Messiah. There were those people. There were also the religious leaders frozen in their anger and hatred towards Jesus. And then you have this fourth group of people who saw through it all and they believe in Jesus Christ because of what's going on. Right? They ask the question, um, uh, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs uh, this, th than this man? And what they're really asking is, what more do we need this man to prove? Finally, it's just clicked in their minds. What more? If the Messiah is someone else and he comes, is he, is he going to possibly do more than this man? It just clicked in their minds. They understood. They saw it all and they believed in Jesus Christ. Okay, now here's a point that I want to make and I want to make it early on as we're getting going here. Verse 31 does not happen without verse 43. Verse 31, people believed in Jesus. Verse 43, people were divided because of Jesus. I want us to understand this. There is simply too much on the line for sugar-coated cotton candy teaching that offers only prosperity, only good feelings, only acceptance, only tolerance, and never steps on anyone's toes with the real truth that convicts and isolates and leads to actual life change, which, by the way, is not a pretty process uh, more often than not. It includes some grit, some discipline, some sacrifice, and it can only happen in Jesus as he enables you. Real truth divides. It causes division. And when it does, there are those who take the side of Christ and they are changed forever for his glory. This is a wonderful thing. If you never offer real truth, division may not happen, but people will not know what it means to take the side of Christ. To never offer truth is to keep people from choosing Jesus. This is why we're so adamant here about preaching the whole truth, the whole gospel, the goods and the sacrifice, right? The things that hurt, but also the things that heal. And if you're here long enough, I guarantee you, you're going to feel stepped on at some point. You're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to feel convicted. But you need to see these moments as opportunities to choose Jesus over yourself. To choose his ways over yours. This is what happens when truth is proclaimed. People are divided about it, but only to real truth can people respond uh, in, in, to the grace that saves. Do we understand that? So reading on, verse 32 uh, through 36, we see, this, uh, we see the Pharisees uh, getting even more um, included. 
right? And in, in verse 32, they try to get the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And Jesus goes on and he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm only here for a little bit, right? And then the Jews begin to mock him. They say in verse uh, 35, where did this man uh, intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They just asked these questions, again, just kind of mocking what Jesus was saying, mainly because they didn't understand it, right? Jesus was going back to the Father after he was glorified, after he rose from the dead, he was going back to the Father. We cannot go there. The only way to go there uh, is to be deceased from this earth, and we are not to do that before our time. So he is with the Father. We cannot go there. But that doesn't mean that it's hopeless because verse 37, he goes on and he starts talking about, um, let all who are thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And what he meant by this, verse 39, is the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. We're going to come back to these verses a little more fully. But what an act of grace, right? Jesus goes to a place where people cannot go. But even though he goes there, in the meantime, he has given us his spirit. For those of you who have believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the Spirit alive within you. It is the Spirit of Christ. It is uh, his will and desire, um, even uh, the enablement of his character. He guides, he protects, he sustains. This is the person of the Spirit within you if you have received Christ. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. And he's given it to us while he's there. He's going to come back again. And he's going to restore us to himself. But in the meantime, he's given us something to get through the chaos of this world. That we can focus on him and live uh, uh, um, righteous before him. He's given us his spirit so we can do this. So we have a chance. Right? We're going to come back to that. Verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants? Um, there's an issue here uh, because there was two Bethlehems. Did you know that? There was one in Galilee and one in Judea. And so out of ignorance, people just kind of didn't, they couldn't connect the dots and figure out where Jesus truly came from. Jesus was born in Bethlehem uh, of Judea, which was the birthplace of David as well. People were a bit confused by this, and I would probably be too. Um, I, I kind of was going into this, and so uh, I understand the confusion. But they were divided, right? Verse 43, thus the people were divi divided because of Jesus. All of these floating things in these verses, and the result is that there was a division among the people. And yet, verse 44, there were some that were so divided. There was a portion of the division that was so divided that they wanted once again to seize Jesus, but they were locked up. They couldn't do it. They couldn't lay a hand on him, right, because it wasn't Jesus' time. So the people were divided. All of this confusion, awkwardness, division among the people because Jesus said publicly that he was sent from God to do and to teach as God had sent him to do. And the question we're faced with today is this, is it worth the divide? And hopefully in your hearts there's an emphatic yes. There is a place for division. 
There is a place for division. Before I was uh, brought on full-time here at First Baptist a few years ago, uh, the 10 years before that, I did student ministries. I did uh, uh, high school uh, student ministries here at First Baptist. And so I had these opportunities to be involved with youth pastors from around the community to do kind of community events and to be active in the schools and so on. And so at these meetings, there would be uh, 15 to 20 youth pastors um, uh, at one table thinking about ways that we can, uh, uh, you know, expose Christ to people. But as you would imagine, at a table with that many people, there were a lot of denominations represented. There were a lot of deferring thoughts represented. And dare I say it, there was a lot of uh, deferring thoughts on truth represented at that table. And so what we often found is that, uh, what I found is that uh, the meetings were usually pretty, superficial, pretty surface level. It was just about how we can share Christ to people. There was not a whole lot of Bible study. Uh, there was prayer. It was not guided often by the scriptures, and my own personal opinion is because if you dig deep enough, eventually there's going to be a division among the table. Now, I can't prove that. I don't know if that's the nature of it, but that's kind of where I resolved after a few meetings of, of of, of kind of wordless, let's reach people for Christ. So you can understand maybe the conflict I was in, okay? Now, by the way, I'm in full agreement of the ideal of it. The universal church impacting the community, sharing Christ with people. This is wonderful. This is uh, ideally what we are supposed to do. But in all honesty, I had some uneasiness about it because it also, along with this, in the context that I was talking about, there was just this, this force, this, this constant drive for unity, unity, unity. To the point where it said, you need to get, we need to get over our denominations, we need to get over our differences, and we just need to be unified for Christ, man. You know, that was the idea. Again, ideally, maybe. Okay, ideally, but this is not the ideal scenario that we live in. And let me just ask you this. How would you answer this? Can you be unified in mission and purpose with someone who believes different than you about the essentials of your belief in Jesus Christ? The essential beliefs of the Trinity, each person within it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the essential of uh, justification by faith, not by works of any sort. The understandings of human depravity and sin. The authority of the scriptures. Can you spiritually be united with a person who believes different than you upon these essentials of your faith? It's a tough question. It's a tough question. Um, when I was in this place, I, I, I sought feedback from a lot of people, and I had quite a few that say that, you know, as long as Christ is the focus, it's okay to be a part, to keep it surface level, because things are getting done, students are hearing about Jesus, so have at it. And I agree with this, right? The Apostle Paul said himself in Philippians 1.18, what does it matter? The important thing uh, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. That's what Paul said about this. But then I had counsel from others that said, how can you serve and proclaim uh, the gospel with others if you and the others have a different version of the gospel? 
It's a very good point, and I also agree with that. The same Paul wrote in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. So only in Christ, by the way, can you navigate this. These are, these, are, these are hard to navigate, and only in the Spirit was I able to navigate it at all. Um, and, and let me go ahead and just say I'm not one to judge a person or even a church on denomination. Uh, however, I will be one to judge a church based on the truth it teaches. And I do not give much credence to division based on name and denomination, but we cannot ignore the fact that the reason the ideal um, unified, universal church has been so divided and convoluted is because the division has happened based upon the true and right understanding of God's word, the essential understanding of our Savior, the belief that he calls us to. These are worth division. These are worth the division. We do not support division in the church over trivial matters, non-essential issues that most often, if not always, revolve around people's uh, pride and stubbornness. But when it comes to truth as presented from the word of God, if you teach a different truth or preach a different gospel or trust in a lesser Jesus or believe the word is anything less than God's direct word to his church, then we will probably be divided. I will love you and try to be grace to you, but we will probably be divided when it comes to these things. They cannot be sacrificed for fake unity, for the sake of denomination or church name, for the sake of anything. And somehow people have come to this conclusion that Jesus longs for just this whole, can't we all just get along, thought. Um, even if truth is, is on the line. And Jesus says in Luke 12, do you think I have come to bring peace on the earth? I, uh, no, I tell you, I've come to bring division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. And he makes the list of how family can be divided, right? Something so tight as family, but when it comes to truth, it is worth it. Did you know that there are people from other faiths who respond to truth and experience harsh, brutal division from their families because of truth, because of Jesus? Right? That's what he's referring to. Now, there were other factors at play that contributed to this division. And so let's call these out uh, briefly. First of all, we see verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. We see just how human judgment, how human, poor human um, um, judgment upon appearances can just totally jade the thing for people. Right? We've seen how that can contribute it. Uh, we, we've also seen in verse 25... If you want to read, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? Did you notice how the people wondered if the religious authorities had accepted Jesus' claim? Right? Uh, we don't see a whole lot here uh, to, to notice any overwhelming sense that the Pharisees influenced the crowd. But if you've read through the New Testament, you'll be hard-pressed to find one book that does not say in some way how the voice of influence damaged the church. In fact, every New Testament book, with the exception of Philemon, and even that book, I think there is um, division going on behind the scenes. Every book says overtly, speaks, it speaks overtly against this. It was under the attack of other voices of influence. 
Jesus calls them out hard in the Gospels. We see them firsthand at work in Acts. Uh, We already read how Paul calls them out. Uh, If you've been coming to our study through Corinthians on Wednesdays and you've heard about the damage that outside voices of influences can, voices of influence can bring into the church. Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians, Titus, Timothy, Hebrews, on and on. All of them, they call it out. Voices of influence from the outside. False teachers, false prophets, that's who they are. Infiltrators, distorters of truth. And they come with good sounding arguments, fluffed up knowledge, fancy attire, charismatic speech. And people get sucked in every time. Jude 19 says that people, that they are people who follow their own ungodly desires. They are the people that divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Okay. And it's not always spiritual voices, as we all know. Sometimes it's popular voices. Sometimes it's educated voices, political voices. Just voices of empathy that attempt to speak into spiritual things. And because it sounds nice, people give in. Did you know that the man who is commonly known as the smartest man on the earth, out of the some billion people that we have on earth, he is the smartest man, and he says with certainty there is no God. You can't tell me that's not influencing people. Right? We know what Psalm 14 says, the man who says there is no God is a fool, but not everybody's going to jump to that. But when the smartest man tells you there is no God, it's going to influence How about the most popular voice? One of the most popular voices out there says that it doesn't matter what you call it. It's just a spiritual journey. Whether you call it God or this or that, it doesn't matter. It's all the same way of getting to the same place. It's all different ways, I'm sorry, of getting to the same place. You can't tell me that's not influencing people. These are outside voices, false teachings. And any time you have those who are swayed from the truth by these things... In the same room as those who hold to the truth. Don't be surprised when there's division among you. There's a place for it. Now there's many other factors. Uh, I want to label them just quickly so we can uh, get to this final thought. Um, there's just the, the, the factor of just understanding of miracles. In verse 31 and 32 there was just a uh, misunderstanding of Well, we see it, and it plays a part into the belief of people, but we see oftentimes people have a a misunderstanding of why Jesus did the miracles that he did, right? We understand that it's him declaring his authority, that it's him uh, declaring his authority over sickness and pain and nature, ultimately the grave and sin and, and death. But there are those who believe this, but there are those who also doubt this, and there are others who deny it, and it's an obvious an understood divide. Then there's some questions that the Jews begin to ask, one of which in verse 32 uh, through 36, we see this question, where is he going? Or for us now, uh, post-resurrection, it's the question, where is he now? It's a question of identity, and it contributes to the division because really it's, it's identifying just the, um, the full reason that people are even divided. He's sent from God. This is a a statement about that. Where is he going? There are people um, who believe that he is dead. He has died. There are people who celebrated Easter, millions of people who believe that Jesus is no longer alive, that he has actually died. It's just Easter bunnies and and eggs for them. There are other people that believe that Jesus um, is actually going to be absorbed 
back into the Father and that he's no longer going to be an individual person, right? And so they deny the Trinity, right, when the Bible says that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting to return again and bring his followers to glory with him, that he is preparing a place for us and death is the only way to jump the gun on this, right? So they... They wrestle with the question, where is he going or where is he at now for us? They also wrestle with the question of where he is from. Where he is from. By the way, this is an essential. Only, only if he was fully God and fully a man could he atone for the sins of the world. This is an essential understanding. Outside of this, there will probably be division. We will have division. He was fully God fully man. If, he is, uh, if Jesus is not from God, then he's simply a man, and his death uh, means no more than anyone else's death. And if Jesus is only from God, then he is not human, which means he cannot represent us on the cross. Either way, we're left hopeless. But he was both. He was both. Okay. Now, to bring it to a close, I just want to just call it out that my greatest fear with preaching a sermon about this is that there are those who might take it to justify uh, simple things like bigotry, that they might actually seek out division, that they might actually seek out division and, and uh, use it to display their head knowledge and uh, that kind of stuff, and we see this all the more in this uh, age of social media that we live in. By the way, if this is you, please, please stop. We do not need this. But the division we're talking about today is natural, and it arises when one party stands on truth and another denies it, and so there's a, a division and spiritual unity there. At no point, though, do we lose the mission of the gospel. We desire unity in the truth, in the truth, but apart from it, there is division. We want others to know truth, to know Christ, to know salvation, and this mission cannot be completed apart from the grace of love. It cannot be completed apart from grace and love. Your greatest evangelistic strategy, the most popular biblical strategy, is to love and serve those who disagree with you. And I want you to know that nobody embodied it better than Jesus Christ in this passage. Two things I want you to notice. First of all, in the midst of all the division, all of the the jaded responses, Jesus had full control. He remained fully in control. Notice the times where he spoke into people's thoughts even though they weren't uh, talking to him. Right? Notice that. Uh, in verse 28 uh, and 29, uh, he, he says, uh, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him. Notice the authority of being the one sent. And then you got these verses like verse 30 and verse 44 where they actually try to seize him and they lock up. They can't do it because something's holding them back. These people who hate him, they're trying to seize him and they can't. Jesus was in full control of it all. By the way, at any point in time, he could have just said, you know what, I'm sorry guys, can't we all just get along? Let's just put aside our differences. He could have said that at any point in time and probably calmed it. But he did not. He did not. Right? He was in full control of it. He knew what was going to happen as a result of it. And he stuck to his guns. He stuck to truth. Because only in truth is 31 an option. People believed in him. Right? He's in full control. But not only that, he 
still offered grace. He was in full control, and he still offered grace. Even with murderous threats upon him, he still offered grace. And that's verse 37 through 39. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Okay, this is wonderful. And there are so many connections between this and the festival uh, that is going on. We just don't have time to dig into that, but I encourage you to look into that. But Jesus is an anchor of grace amidst the division. And I want you to know that we're called to the same. I believe the heart of every spiritual argument and division and debate, even if it is necessary based on truth, that it should have grace at its source. Maybe you're here and you're intimidated by the concept of vision, uh, of division. You do not want to be divided from your friends or from the lifestyle choices you cherish or from the choices that, that you make that lead to temporary joy, but in all honesty, it quickly turns to guilt. So you avoid it. Your walk in Christ is swayed because you're not up for the cost of being divided on the truth. Maybe you're here and you enjoy it too much. The tension and conflict and opportunity of division provides for you a, a chance to kind of show your stuff, to grind your teeth a little bit, show a little righteous anger. Listen, if your firm stance in Jesus Christ is absent of grace, then your faith will remain your own. You are helping no one towards Christ, and your efforts are useless for the gospel. Please know that. If you're here and God is calling you to stand firm on truth, this means being divided from the things that he does not want for you. You need to stand on the side that bought you eternal life, that gives you victory over any stronghold in your heart and mind. Some of you are here and you've suffered great loss because of your graceful stance upon truth. Maybe you're here and you're concerned at the divisive nature of the world we live in. Just take a look around. Division marks us. This is who we are. It's from the fall. Adam and Eve decided this when they divided from God, and ever since then we've struggled with this. It's nothing new, by the way, what we're seeing in our world now. But here's, here's the word from Jesus, to take heart, because he is in control, and his grace is the answer to it all. Live in his grace, find peace in it, let it fuel your heart for people, for the church and for the lost, and never stand on truth apart from it. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we ask that you use these words, you use the scripture uh, to move in our hearts, God. Let us be a people of grace. There are so many deferring thoughts and opinions and just, just a world of it, Lord, uh, that we find ourselves in. Once we step out of this building, we'll be in it. But God, we're grateful for even the times that we stand upon truth and that we experience suffering as a result, God, that you are still in full control. And God, people need to see us respond to division, respond to conflict with grace. They need to see that truth. They need to see you shine in the midst of these times, God. I pray that you would use this church, use each one of us to be marked by grace in a way that by just the way we live, especially in moments of division, God, that, that you shine bright. God, uh, let us be marked with grace. Uh, let people come to know you through us because of the, your grace in our lives. We're grateful. 
for what Jesus did and the way that he emulated this and was this perfectly uh, to show for us, God. Uh, it's in his name we pray. Amen.